0: If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, we thank you for your deep, deep love that nothing, not even ourselves, can sever us from an eternal relationship given to us as a gift by faith in you. We love you, Father. May we love you with our whole hearts. We know to love you is to obey you, and to obey you is to know you, for you said as we obey, you reveal and disclose more of yourself to us. And so we come humbly today as we open your word, show us Christ, the scriptures speak of him. We ask that as we study, that we would study with sensitive hearts, that the Spirit of God would have freedom to say whatever would please him, help our Church, as we meet in Graniteville this morning, and the Bluffton-Hilton Head campus. Bless those campuses as well. Help us here, especially in this 11 o'clock service, to reach out this week to those that are around us. May we care for their souls. May we minister the love of Jesus to them. Father, I need your help, but I thank you. You promised you would give it. Without you, I can do nothing, but with you all things are possible. So please come and fill me and anoint me that together we might lift up Jesus, whom we love so much. And we pray in his holy name. Amen. Would you take God's word this morning and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. If you were here last time, we turned a corner in this great study. I hope you bring a Bible, and if you have a paper edition, I promise you'll get 50% more out of any Bible uh, lesson I teach. And you will certainly begin to learn your way around the Bible if you have a paper copy. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, the International Bulletin of Missionary Research reported that 480 Christians are martyred every single day somewhere in the world. That means that before this sermon is over, 20 Christians will have been executed and on their way to heaven for choosing to live for Jesus. It's epidemic right now in the world Jesus in John fifteen eighteen said, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. By the world, of course, he's referring to the unbelievers, to those who do not give Jesus praise and glory. And if the world hated him, an absolutely perfect individual who never did anything wrong, they will certainly hate us even with our imperfections. And so we are in Christ. We're out of the world. And so, to be sure, we're here physically, but spiritually, we live on a different plane by the mercy and grace of God Almighty. We have, in the words of the writer to the Hebrews, become partakers of the divine nature. And so, that gives us a new appetite for the things of God, for the things that God values, we begin to value. It doesn't mean that we're isolated from reality, nor does it mean that we're insulated from lost people. Unfortunately, some Christians are so heavenly-minded that they are no earthly good, but God has called us to engage the world with the good news, as someone engaged you and shared with you how you could be forgiven. And to some people that we will engage, the Scripture says, will be a sweet savor, to others a rotten stink. Listen to what Paul said. "'Thanks be to God who always leads us in His triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place.'" For we are a fragrance of Christ to God, to those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma from death to death, the other an aroma from life to life. Now behind the scenes, there is an evil one who is at work. His name is Satan, and he absolutely despises and hates Christians. I hope you realize you don't need to pray for the devil. Every once in a while, someone will ask me that. He hates you, he is your enemy, and he is headed not for any kind of redemption, but he is headed for eternal destruction. And Satan knows that one day God's people will occupy the throne room in heaven. We will co-reign with Jesus, we are promised. We will rise from the dead or rise off this planet through our new resurrection, resurrected immortal bodies. And we will rule and reign with Jesus. It's a marvelous promise. But Satan has been dethroned. He actually tried to take the very place of God, as Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 records. And so at first he was cast down to earth. And there is coming a day when he'll be cast into the abyss. For a thousand years he'll be totally restricted. And then he'll be loosed for a short period of time, as we will study towards the end of the revelation. And then he will be forever cast into the lake of fire with never-ending heartache. And so he hates the believer because we're moving upward. he's moving downward. And so when you come to a church like the one in Smyrna, their real enemy was not just unbelievers, but the devil himself who is working behind unbelievers. Paul says our, our struggle is not against people, flesh and blood, but those forces that are working behind those people principalities, and powers. And of course, as you read through the history of the church, Christians who are persecuted, it doesn't stamp out the church. It has a way of spreading the church. It doesn't paralyze the church. It actually purifies the church. Tertullian, the great church father, said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, the more Christians lose their lives, typically, the faster the gospel spreads. So, we're in an exciting adventure as we study these seven churches together. And there's nothing like a good, healthy local church. The fellowship, the joy, the relationships, the Spirit of God present, there's nothing like it. There's all kinds of organizations in this world that Christians give themselves to, but there's nothing like a good, healthy local church. It's an awesome testimony and it has tremendous power to make a difference in the world. And so we come this morning to the second letter of the seven letters that Jesus writes to seven churches. We want to begin by reading the letter that he wrote to these people. We're picking up now in verse 8 of chapter 2 where we left off last week. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who is dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty but you are rich in the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan do not fear what you are about to suffer behold the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you may be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days be faithful until death and i will give you the crown of life he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Now for the benefit of those joining us for the first time and the rest of us who I hope want to master this book, let me refresh you with the context. When you understand the big picture of any book of the Bible, the details take on meaning and it becomes a tool in your hand, not only to help yourself, but to disciple other people. We discovered in chapter one that the theme of this book is Christ coming again in the clouds of glory. That's Revelation one seven. But then we saw in Revelation one nineteen, the outline of this book. Therefore, he's instructed by Jesus. John, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. So according to Revelation 119, there are three sections to the book of Revelation and it follows it absolutely perfect. Chapter 1 describes the past, chapters 2 and 3 the present, chapters 4 through 22 the future. A young brother in Christ asked a very perceptive question as we were leaving the church last week and I was on my way to the airport. He said, when John is told to write the things that are present, is he talking about our day right now? And I said, no, principally, he's speaking about the day in which he is living in where these seven churches existed. But on the other hand, because of the admonition that God will give at the end of each letter, in one sense, he's speaking to us as well, because this is for all time for all churches. Twenty centuries has gone by since John received these letters and recorded them in the Revelation, but they are still as applicable today as the day in which they were first penned. So when you come to chapter 4, Remember, the outline ends in 119 with after these things, metatata, and the first two words of one is metatata, after these things. So chapter 4, all the way through the end of the book, is futuristic. When we come to chapters 4 and 5, we will have an awesome peek into the throne room of God. And then when we come to chapter 6, God will begin to unleash and unfold the awful judgments that are going to come through the seal Uh, trumpet in bold judgments. And so here's a picture of the book, the things past, the things present, the things future. Chapter one deals with the Christ. He records this marvelous vision that he has of the glorified, exalted Christ. Chapters two and three focus on the church and four through 22, the consummation. The church is nowhere mentioned in chapters four until the 19th chapter when Jesus comes back again. It's because they have been raptured. Or to say it differently, in chapter 1 we have Christ in His glory, in chapter 2 we have Christ in His church, and then in the rest of the book we have Christ in His judgment. Now verse 20 is part of the vision where Jesus interprets some of the things that He has said, but it sets the stage for the seven letters that will follow. Notice, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. So when Jesus says to John, As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw, again, he's referring back to that vision. He has said already in verse 16 here, In his right hand, he held seven stars. But now he tells us in verse 20 that the seven stars refer to seven angels or what we might call seven pastors over the seven lampstands, which he further defines to be seven churches. Now, remember, in the opening verse of the Revelation, it's a very important verse, we read the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, Jesus Christ. He gave it to him, not in the sense that he was informing the omniscient second member of the Trinity, but as we will see, he gave it to him who knows everything, and that he is the one who is going to execute what we will read in this book. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his bondservants, I hope that's you. If you're born again, you're one of his bondservants. The things which must soon take place. We saw the word soon as the Greek word taxis. We get our word tachometer from it. It refers to something that quickly or suddenly happens, that once these events begin, they will spiral very, very fast. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. It was communicated. Now, if you have the NASB, you will remember out in the margin, you could render the word signified. It was signified. And I like that word in one sense, and that the first four letters of signified is sign signified, and it's the same word that is translated as sign, except this is a verb, the same word that's translated as sign in John's gospel, where he calls his miracles signs. That is, they are attesting miracles. They are miracles with a message behind them, and so he carefully selects the seven miracles that he uses. Well, he uses it, the same word here to describe the fact that, John, you're going to receive this Great revelation in signs, that is, in a symbolic way. These are signs that you need to understand. Now, we saw that for the most part, the revelation will interpret itself either within the text or as we will see in the Old Testament. We studied the prophet Daniel first because that sets up the future schematic. And very important. And if you haven't been with us for the study of Daniel, it's online. You can get it at your phone app, searchthescriptures.org. But most of what is in the Revelation is in reference to the Old Testament. Of the 404 verses, 300 are allusions to the Old Testament. And never once does he say, Moses said, or Hosea said, or Isaiah said. It's just assumed that you know your way around. And God did that for a reason. One, this is for his bondservants. And so the average lost person, he's reading someone else's mail and he doesn't have a clue. But many Christians don't have a clue because they don't know their Old Testament. And so they have to go and study and mind out the truths that are here. And we're going to do that by the grace of God. We're going to search it out very, very carefully, verse by verse, phrase by phrase. And one of the benefits of doing that is it causes you to reflect and think about what God is really saying. So this is signified. It's full of symbols. And once you understand the symbol, you literally believe it. Just because it's apocalyptic literature doesn't mean that you don't literally interpret it. You interpret figures of speech and signs and symbols as to what they mean, and once you understand the meaning, you literally embrace it. And he writes here, to seven churches, not seven epics of church history some have done that with the seven churches and they said well each church represents all the first church the apostolic age and so forth all the way up to the laodicean church now there are characteristics i suppose at different times in human history that you will see the church display one way more than another but these are seven literal churches that are in existence and here is the map if you remember They are in a horseshoe kind of approach. And we will go up to the top of the horseshoe and then down again, ending with Laodicea. Uh, This was the postal route there in Asia Minor or the province of Asia. Not the continent of Asia as we know it today, but this was a province within the Roman Empire. But why seven? Because history documents there's about a hundred churches here in this region, we call Asia. Some of us know a few others like Colossus, which is really close to number six. Or we know Troas, that is really close to number three. Um, why these? And why seven? Why not three? Why not ten? Why not the church at Rome or Corinth or, or Jerusalem or Antioch? God has a reason for everything. And one of the reasons is because with each letter in the New Testament, God is thinking not just of that church, but He's thinking of churches down the road, like ours, like Community Bible Church. The church at Rome that received a letter from Paul, it wasn't just for them, it was for us as well. And so we are to learn it and explore it. And these are seven churches with. Real people with real problems. And so one of the reasons he writes to these seven is he loves these people and he cares about these people and they need his help. Another reason we discovered was through the common phrase written to each church, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, the problems they face are problems that any church can face or maybe are experiencing today. Not to the church, but to the churches. In other words, these seven churches were to read each other's mail. They're to read it. Not only were they to read it, we are to read it. Now, it might be that uh community Bible church typifies one of these seven churches more than another. But within any church... There's all seven that are represented. If you have a church of any size, typically, you will have some people that will mimic, say, the church at Philadelphia, others the church at Laodicea, others Ephesus, others Smyrna, and so forth. And so it's possible for a church to be like that at Ephesus, where they have left their first love. It's possible for a church to be like that at Philadelphia, where they have tremendous opportunity. And in the end, what matters is not what the church growth experts think or what we even think. Some of these churches are in for kind of a shock. They think they are one way, but they discover that from Jesus' perspective, they are quite another way. And so what matters is not what others think or what we think or what church growth experts think. What matters is what Jesus Christ thinks. But there's another reason, and that is an individual reason. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. It looks to me like everyone here has an ear. In other words, what he is saying is not just for us corporately. We don't want to be vicarious sermon listeners. You know, I'm, I'm listening for so-and-so. I wish so-and-so were here today. Now, we need to listen to this sermon, and I need to hear it, like we're the only persons here today. Now, I told you that there's a common structure which each of the seven letters. Each begins with a a characteristic that Jesus gives of himself. Um, And I challenged you last week, I don't know how many of you did it, I shared with you that those common characteristics that Jesus gives of himself is found in the first chapter. And to go back and match from the first chapter to chapters two and three where they come from, and there's one church that doesn't get a commendation from the way Jesus describes himself, and I asked you to find out what church that was, I don't know if you did it, uh, and, and to think through why. This is going to become very important. But the various aspects of himself as seen in that vision that he's going to apply to six out of seven of these churches. He does so for a reason, because the description of himself applies specifically to the issues that that church was facing. Then after he describes himself, he gives an evaluation of each church. And with the evaluation, sometimes comes something bad, sometimes something good, or both. With churches five and seven, two of the churches, the one we're examining today, Sardis, or the one we will examine, Sardis and Laodicea, he says nothing good. But with two of the churches, all he says is good. With Smyrna and with Philadelphia. And with the other three, he speaks of himself. He says something good about them. He says something bad about them. And then with all seven churches, he gives a, an admonition or a correction if needed. So let's get started with the church at Smyrna. I want you to first notice that the church in Smyrna faced persecution. They faced persecution. Notice how verse 8 begins, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write." Now, if you were here last week, and if you weren't, you might want to go back and review it because I go into a lot more detail then, but we saw that there are two usages in both the Hebrew and the Greek of the word angel. It can refer malak, the Hebrew angel, to a literal actual angel, or it can refer to a human messenger. And the word in the New Testament, angelos, comes in as Angel can refer to a literal angel or it can refer to a human messenger. And interestingly, there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Most of you know it's the Septuagint. And if you have the NASB in the margin when the Septuagint is being quoted, and most of the Old Testament quotations in the New Testament are not from the Greek Bible, but uh, from the Hebrew Bible, but the Greek Bible, and there'll be a little thing in your margin, LXX. That's 70, because supposedly the Septuagint was written by 70 men. In either case, and the Septuagint, Malach angel, is with the Greek word angelos that we use in the New Testament. But here's the point. Sometimes when you see the word Malach angel, in the Old Testament, it's referring to a little angel, like the one that closed the mouths of the lions. Or it can refer to a human messenger. So some of the prophets are called Malachs or angels. They're messengers. Prophetically speaking, the forerunner of the Lord in the book of Malachi is called the Malach, the angel, the messenger of the Lord. You come into the New Testament. John the Baptist is called the angel of God. He's not a literal angel. His disciples are called angels, angeloi. There are messengers or sorts. So when you come to this chapter, and by the way, in most languages, they don't interpret it at all. We tend to do that in English. The disadvantage to that is we don't always think. Where in other languages, they always use the word angel. And when you see John called an angel of God, you think, well, he's not a literal angel. It must mean something else, and that's positive. But we're not consistent in the English Bible like other languages are. So we have to ask, is this a literal angel that he's writing? Or is he referring to a human angel, a human messenger? And obviously the latter. And I gave you several reasons why last time, but one primary one is that literal angels do not preach and teach the church. Pastors do. Now, there are some Baptist denominations, and I don't want to pinhole Baptists, because there are actually 250 Baptist denominations in the United States. But lay that aside, uh, a lot of Baptists in the United States have what they call a single angel or a single pastor or a single elder form of government, where there is one pastor. And they will use Revelation chapters 2 and 3 to document that position. Though historically in the United States, English Baptists brought in a plurality of elders, but it gravitated to a single elder form of government. Lay that aside. Why does he address a single elder with each of the churches? Because while in the New Testament, every local church had a plurality of elders, he that is sick among you, he is to call the elders, plural of the church, singular. Not the elders of the churches, not the elder of the church, but the elders, plural of the church, singular. There's a plurality of elders, men who are equal, who carry equal authority, but among that plurality, there is a leader among equals. And typically today, we call that man the senior pastor. So in most churches in America, they may have, you know, five elders or 25 elders, some who are paid, some who uh, are volunteers, so to speak. But typically you will say so-and-so is the pastor of that church. We call that man the senior elder because God needs a leader in every local fellowship. And that's whom he is addressing. And in the angel or the senior pastor of the church in Smyrna, Now, Smyrna is an important city. It's 35 miles north of Ephesus on that postal route. It has a population in this day of about 100,000 people, and it's one of the oldest inhabited cities at the time. It had been in existence for about 3,000 years. In fact, just a few years before Jesus left heaven and incarnated himself there in Bethlehem, There was an awful earthquake in this city, and that will become important when we compare their reaction with the reaction of another city. It was called in the first century the crown city. It was called the crown of Asia. And if you're on the Aegean Sea and you're looking up at uh, at Smyrna up on this hill, it, it formed the shape of a crown, and I'll explain why in just a moment. Now, Ephesus, we discovered last week, was the capital city of the whole province of Asia. It was the Washington, D.C., so to speak. Well, if Ephesus was the Washington, D.C., Smyrna was the New York City. This was a commercial city. It was a very, very wealthy city. The rich of the rich lived in this city, and one of their products, which they were known for, after which this city is named, was for a little shrub-like bush called myrrh. And so it's called smyrna, you know what myrrh is. The wise men brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They were insightful, godly men, not pagans. They brought gold because they worshiped Jesus as a king. They brought frankincense because they worshiped his sinless deity. God said that you couldn't just use frankincense for your own personal use. And if you did, you were to be cut off or executed. It was only to be used by the Jewish people in the worship of God because it emphasized the holiness of God. And so they brought frankincense to worship his sinless deity, but they also brought myrrh. That's like bringing embalming fluid to a baby shower. But they did that because they understood what the prophet Daniel had said. That Messiah would be cut off. These were probably disciples of Daniel down the line. In either case, this is a very religious city. There's a lot of temples there built to men uh, like Zeus or gods like Zeus, Apollo, Aphrodites. Cybele was one of the higher gods worshipped on a street called the Golden Street, and they had such a street because they were such a wealthy place. And so pagan life dominated this place, and there were some thriving Jewish synagogues here as well. Now let's read verse 1. To the angel, the senior pastor of the church in Smyrna, write, the first and the last, who is dead and has come to life, says this. Now again, with each of these, he gives a personal description of himself from the first chapter, and it caters to the specific need of this church. Here he calls... Himself the first and the last who is dead and has come to life. Now the first and the last is a very important phrase found in the Old Testament. What the Jews call the Tanakh. If you're doing Jewish evangelism and you should pray for opportunity because God cares about Jewish people, don't call our first half the Old Testament. They'll find that offensive and it's unnecessary to offend them. Call it the Tanakh, what they call it. That's an anacronym for Torah, Nephi'im. Torah, the first Nephi'im, the prophets, and Ketuvim, the the writings. So they call their Bible the Tanakh. Well, in the Tanakh, this phrase, the first and the last, is a description of God Almighty, of Jehovah or Yahweh. You could interpret the word either way, either Yahweh or Jehovah, depending on how you put the vowels. And so God describes himself in that way, and yet Jesus describes himself in this way in this verse. I'm the first and the last. He said to those Jewish men, before Abraham was born, Jehovah, Yahweh, I am. And of course, they picked up stones to stone him. Why are you stoning me? Because of the good deeds I've done? No, because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. If you ever encounter Jehovah's Witness... And you're trying to win them to Jesus. A good verse to use is Isaiah 44.6 with this verse in Revelation. Isaiah 44.6, thus says the Lord. Thus says Yahweh. You see that it's in all caps. That means Y-H-W-H in Hebrew. And you can put the vowels where you could pronounce it Yahovah or Yahweh, either way. In the New American Standard, which is what most of us have in our laps this morning... And the 1901 edition, called the American Standard Version, the ASV, every time you came to this word Lord, they rendered it Jehovah. And so the Jehovah's Witnesses, before they created their own translation of the Bible, used the NASB. But they ran into problems. Because as people were reading the NASB, called then the ASV, they started getting saved. (laughs) <laughs> so then they created their own uh, corrupt translation where they manipulated what God had said. It was just done by people who knew nothing of the Greek New Testament. God said, I am the first and the last. Jesus says, I am the first and the last who was dead And it's come to life. Unmistakably, it can only refer to him. In Revelation 1.18, he says, I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. He is alive forevermore. He has indestructible, incorruptible life. And if you are united to him because you've been born again, you will live forever as well. He says, I have the keys of death. In Hades, that means he has authority over life and death. Not only did he come out of the grave, he took the keys with him. He's in total charge. And what an encouragement that would be for these saints in Smyrna who are being persecuted and beaten up, and some of them were losing their lives. Jesus says, The gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. On another occasion, he said, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him, God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You know, this verse is an encouragement. Revelation chapter 2, the letter to Smyrna to Christians in Asia and Africa who are being persecuted by ISIS and Boko Haram. This verse is a great encouragement to Christians in India. And I've been communicating on a regular basis with one of our missionaries in India. And we've been Skyping back and forth to Christians who are being persecuted where their homes and their churches are being burned by Hindu nationalists. This verse is an encouragement to Christians in the Middle East who because they refuse to renounce Jesus, they literally have their heads cut off. And by the way, that will be the standard means of persecution during the time of the tribulation. They won't throw you in jail. They will cut off the heads of God's tribulation saints. 600 Christian nationals were brought together by Franklin Graham last week in Washington, D.C., to deal with this problem of persecution that is epidemic right now. Understand the church was born in persecution, but also understand the Bible teaches the church will End in persecution. It's one of the marks and one of the signs of the last days. And if you read the Fox's Book of Martyrs, he describes how Emperor Domitian, he's the emperor in the Roman Empire, who's over this province and all of the Roman Empire, who's in charge when the Book of Revelation is written in 95 AD. Not only had they suffered as believers horrifically under Nero, they also suffered under Domitian. But the end of both those men were awful. They died horrible deaths themselves. And the ultimate persecutor, the Antichrist, who will persecute more believers than anyone in all of human history, his end will also be in the future lake of fire. So what do we do as Christians? Do we sit on our hands? Because in America, it is relatively little persecution here. By the way, that's going to change, and it is changing. Right now, most of the persecution is verbal. And one of the things that concerns me is parents who are bringing their children into my office, and they have children 8, 10, 11, 12 years old, and they're being made fun of and persecuted by other children of the same age. It tells me how much evil is getting even into the hearts of little innocent children. And listen, if this nation does not turn around, if evil just continues to grow, you need to prepare your children and your grandchildren for what is in front of them. Because they will be persecuted. And so do we sit on our hands and do nothing? Of course not. Hebrews 13.3 says, Remember those in prison. And that's what these 600 nationals were doing in D.C. last week. Remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them. And those ill treated as though you too felt their torments. And so Jesus describes himself as the one who is alive who is over death, who's over the grave. He wants them to know that he is in total authority, not Domitian. He has no authority over your life. He can't lock you into the grave. He can't lock you into Hades. He can't lock you into hell, and neither can he lock you out of heaven. I am in absolute control. And so these were believers who were letting their light shine, and because they were, they paid a price. Look further into verse 8 and then verse 9. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right, the first and the last, who is dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation. Now we saw that the word tribulation, some of your English Bibles say sufferings, but I don't think that's the best translation because suffering can encompass a broad span of things that are not necessarily tribulations. Now, we saw this word already. Someone said to me last week, you repeated yourself already on one of the points. I said, I repeated myself because the Bible repeated itself. And every time God repeats a theme again in the Revelation, I'm going to repeat what God said. Do you think He repeats Himself because He has nothing to say? Of course not. The problem is some of us have become dull of hearing. And we don't have ears to hear the Word of God. They're waxed over, to use a metaphor in the New Testament. No, he wants us to hear some things over again because it's through repetition that it really sticks. And so we saw that the word tribulation doesn't refer to the average aches and pains. And, you know, we just say, well, he's going through a lot of trials and tribulations and we just kind of group it all together. It specifically is used in the New Testament to describe hostility or pressure from an unbelieving world towards the believer. In the world, you will have... Tribulation, Philipsis, but take courage, I have overcome the world. It's a Greek word that literally means to be crushed. It was used outside of the Bible in this century that the revelation is being written of a rock that was rolled over a person as a means of torture. It was used of grapes that were crushed to get the juice out of them. Jesus said, speaking of the coming tribulation, for those days will be a time of philipsis, tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. The tribulation saints, we're church saints, but those saved during the tribulation will experience untold persecution. In Revelation 7, he describes these who have been beheaded, These are the ones who come out of the great Thalipsis tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Paul warned the saints through many... Tribulation, same word, we must enter the kingdom of God. And so Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the first and the last. I am over life and death. I understand what you are going through. I understand the crushing persecution, the tribulation that you are facing. Now, we might ask a question here. What was it about life in Smyrna That created such tribulation. Well, we don't have to wonder. We know precisely why. Because the book of Revelation, remember, is written in 95 AD to second generation Christians. And we know that persecution came on two levels. One from Jewish people. He's going to mention that before we're done in the letter. Jewish people who were Jewish unbelievers who hated the Christians. But secondly, it came to Christians because of their unwillingness to bow down and worship Caesar. Now remember, by 95 AD, the Roman peace, the Pax Romanus had come into full bloom. I mean, it was a golden age of sorts. People were enjoying life. They could travel without fear of being robbed. They could move across the sea without fear of pirates, the road system. Everything just seemed so wonderful. And so to be involved in Caesar worship as much as anything was to be for the government. It was to be fiercely patriotic. And initially, when Caesar worship was opened up, it was done on a voluntary basis and was rather spontaneous. But there came a time when they highlighted a particular individual, namely the Caesar himself, who they said embodied the spirit of a goddess that they worshipped there, Dea Roma. Dea Roma, They, they built a huge temple to her. And they said the Caesar embodied this spirit. They built the very first temple in honor of Caesar worship in the entire Roman Empire. In fact, once a year, it came to a point where it was no longer voluntary, but mandatory. By 95 A.D., the law was in place that you had to offer a pinch of incense and bow down and say, Caesar is Lord. But the Christians refused to do that. They said, Jesus is Lord. And they refused to do that. Now, it would be easy to compromise. They could have said, okay, they've got their temple to Aphrodite, and they have a temple to Daphne, and one to Mercury, and so on and so forth. So we'll just have our little temple to Jesus. And, oh, what is it for two minutes out of the air to bow down and say, Caesar is Lord. But that's not the way they thought. They thought that would be idolatry. And they recognized that Jesus was not just another God in the pantheon of false gods, that there is salvation in no one else, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so the true Christian would not compromise with this two-minute ordeal. And by the way, when they did this, they received a certificate. We have found some of those ancient certificates. These are the words written on it. We, the representatives of the empire, have seen you sacrificing. And so, if you didn't bow down and sacrifice, you were considered a disloyal patriot. And it brought persecution. Now, you can hardly mention the church at Smyrna without mentioning the pastor Polycarp. Polycarp was personally discipled and mentored by the Apostle John. He was a second-generation Christian, and he was considered to be one of the church fathers. He was a young man when John the Apostle mentored him, and many think that he was the pastor when this book was written, that he was the pastor, that he was the angel that Jesus specifically had in mind. Well, there came a time when, because of his refusal to worship the emperor before a crowd of roaring spectators, one historian of the day records him saying, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Well, with that statement, they further threatened Polycarp, and he answered, Call them then, for we are not accustomed to repent of what is good. They threatened him with animals from the cages. Call them then. For we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. Then the historian of the day says that the Roman officer said this to him, I have respect for your age. Simply say, away with these atheists and be set free. And by atheists, he meant the Christians who would not call Caesar Lord. To which the old pastor said as he pointed to the crowd, away with these atheists. Seeing his determination to deny Christ, the executioner now threatened to burn him at the stake to which this great man of God responded, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and after a little is extinguished, but you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of the eternal punishment it will bring reserved for the ungodly. Why do you tarry? Bring forth what you will. And so on February the 23rd, 155 A.D. at the age of 100, he was executed by being burned at the stake. And here's the Savior saying, I know your tribulation. I know the, the pressure and the despair and the hatred and the death that you're under. I know the burden of your heart. I understand it. I've been there. I've lived it. And I'm with you. And so these are words of great encouragement to these saints that their Savior knows precisely what they are going through. You know, when a when a child is uh, hurt, they often run to their mother, don't they? Because the mother, with the way God has wired a woman, gives a certain compassionate spirit and cares. and, And the child knows that the mother knows what they're going through. When my kids would get hurt, they would usually run to mom. When they were broke, they'd run to me. That's just the way it worked. But, but Jesus said, I know, I understand what you're going through. Second, there is this church that not only faced persecution, but poverty. Verse 9. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? The first and the last who is dead and has come to life. Says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Now, the Greek word for rich, I mean, for, for excuse me, for poverty, is an interesting word because there's about three or four words in the Koine Greek of the New Testament that God could have used. But he used a word specifically that describes destitute poor. I mean, virtually nothing. And history records that their goods were confiscated. Uh, and you can imagine what it was like. Their businesses were abandoned Their homes, much like the Jews during the Second World War in Nazi Germany, they came in, they broke into their homes, and they took everything that they owned. Can you imagine what it was like to be a Christian in the midst of an incredibly wealthy city? Satan could have easily thrown those fiery darts at them. Oh, you serve Jesus. Look where it's gotten you. It's cost you everything. Just deny him, and you'll prosper. But not these brothers. They said, we're going to serve Jesus no matter what. They thought they were poor, but notice what Jesus said, you are rich. And the word for rich is a word that comes directly into English as plutocrat. You are my plutocrats. You are the highest of the high among my rich, so to speak. Jesus was not some blind optimist, but he understood his people. And he understood that those saints who had lost everything in one, on the one hand had gained everything else on the other hand. As we'll see in a moment, they had gained great treasure in heaven. Now put yourself in their shoes because Jesus is saying to them, you think you're poor and you are in a material way, but you're really rich. Maybe I can illustrate it this way. Suppose I come to you and I say, hey, Tom. I've been doing some research in the family tree, and I've discovered that we are related. And I'm a billionaire. And as a billionaire, one of the things that I do is I give $2 million to anyone in my family tree. And I say, Tom, you need to know that your great-great-great-uncle was my great-great-grandfather's brother, and that makes us distant cousins. And you know, my, uh, my normal operatus is to give $2 million to anyone in the family tree. So here's a check for $2 million. And you're absolutely elated. Now all you have is a check with my signature on it. Now I want to ask you, are you rich or are you poor? Now you're headed towards the bank. And you're going to cash that check. Are you rich or are you poor? Because of who I am and because of my integrity and what my signature means on that check, You'd probably pick up the phone and call your wife and say, we're millionaires, we're rich. And you drive to the bank in that old clunker car in your threadbare clothing with a rumbling stomach because you haven't had a good meal in a few days. And you go with the attitude that you are rich because of whose signature is on the check. This is Jesus speaking. And He's speaking to people when they look all around them, it's like they have nothing but Jesus says, in reality, you have everything. You are rich and you have my word on it. And so in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 34, the Smyrnaeans Christians were much like those to whom the writer to the Hebrews pens. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession, a lasting one. And that's what they believe. Now, beyond their persecution and poverty, third, I want you to see their provocation. The church in Smyrna faced provocation. We read now in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, the word blasphemy, blasphemia, it's usually used in the New Testament in reference to slandering God. But on this occasion, is used in reference to slandering God's people. And we know from history, Josephus himself records some of the common blasphemies, slanders that Christians had against them. They said they were cannibals because they talked about eating the flesh and blood, the body of Christ. And they said, you know, they go to their services and they cannibalize one another. And they talked about their potlucks that they called love feasts and they saw it as an opportunity to slander them and they're actually having sexual orgies at at those feasts. And history records in addition not only were they blasphemed in that way but because they refused to worship the Caesar they were considered atheists and infidels. And so Jesus says, I know the blasphemy. By those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. These things were spoken by what Jesus refers to as false Jews. Now, were they Jews in terms of that they were physical descendants of Abraham? Yes, they were. He's not denying that. But they were not true Jews. They were like a synagogue of Satan. We'll study this a little further when we come to the church at Philadelphia. So I'll just briefly comment on it here. But if you remember, Jesus encountered Jews in his day who were, in essence, not true Jews. And throughout the history of the church, there has been Jews who have received Jesus and some who have not. Now, when you study the book of Acts, what's really interesting is that the persecution that first comes upon the church is not primarily from the government, but from Jewish people. But as the centuries progress, it reverses. And Christians end up persecuting the Jewish people, and they still do to this day. False Christians, who unfortunately are lumped together with genuine born-again Christians. And so I have a friend who's an Orthodox rabbi in Jerusalem, and I was explaining to him, no, there's a difference between just Christians and born-again Christians. But you add to that, you have people like Augustine, and Calvin, and Luther, who bemeaned and reviled the Jewish people. You go into Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum in D.C. as well, and you read statements by those Christian leaders, and it's embarrassing. You feel like crawling underneath a couch and hiding yourself. Because they said such awful things about the Jewish people. And so the name Christian, as the centuries has gone by, has become synonymous with someone who is a Jew hater and even a Jew persecutor. But in the early inception of the church, it was the Jewish people, the unbelieving Jews, who persecuted the believing Jews and Gentiles. Saul of Tarsus, of course, a classic example. I know the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but they're a synagogue, an assembly of not God, but of Satan. Now, the assembly or the synagogue of God is a phrase used throughout the Old Testament to describe the Jewish people, God's people, spiritual Jews. And so for Jesus to use similar phraseology and say, this is not a synagogue of God. This is not an assembly of the Lord. This is a synagogue of Satan. Remember when he encountered those Pharisees? He said, you are of your father, the devil. And he said, the devil was a murderer and the father of lies from the beginning." The devil is a blasphemer. His name, Satan, means slanderer. And so there's true Jews and there's false Jews. What's the difference? Romans 2.29. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. True Jews are born again Jews. But these Jews were false Jews, they were a synagogue of Satan, and they attacked the people of God. Listen, you may not be attacked by some false Jew in your day, but I can tell you this, if you live for Jesus, sooner or later you're going to be attacked by some Gentile, more than likely, because all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted Jesus said, blessed are those who've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you, not for being obnoxious, but because of me. Listen, not everybody is supposed to love you. There will be people who will hate you, who will be frustrated with you, who will oppose you, who will slander you, and especially if you are a pastor, which is why Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 5, do not accept an accusation against an elder unless it is confirmed by two or three witnesses. And oftentimes by the time people discover it was slanderous, it's very hard to undo. But Jesus understood what these saints were going through. Because he was slandered. And not only was he slandered, he was beaten with rods. He was assaulted. They put a crown of thorns around his head and ultimately they nailed him to a cross. And so Jesus, by using the title that he uses, says, I understand your blasphemy. I know what you are going through. Fourth, the church in Smyrna not only faced persecution and poverty and provocation, but they faced prison. Jesus said, do not fear what you are about to suffer. The Lord Jesus does not say you will not suffer. He promises here you will suffer. Now that goes against a lot of the prosperity theology of our day. Our prosperity theologians will say, if you just you know think better, you'll live better. And they'll say, this is your best life now. Well, I suppose it is if you're on your way to hell. But this is not your best life now. Your best life is later in the coming kingdom. And God here doesn't say that if you just have enough faith that you'll be blessed financially. These people lost everything. He doesn't say that you, you'll be healthy. These people were beaten down physically. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. And you will have tribulation for 10 days. The church knew what prison was like. Read the Acts. Paul and Peter spent time there. And some in Smyrna would go to prison. And they would suffer for their faith. But it would be a testimony. They would demonstrate through their commitment to Jesus that they had something genuine that was worth embracing. And Jesus says here you will go. For ten days. Now this has been interpreted in a lot of different ways over the centuries. Some say, well, ten days refers to ten years and refers to the Domitian persecution. Or some say it refers to ten segments of time throughout the history of the church. I think it refers to ten days. (laughs) Listen, typically in the Revelation, unless you know something to be a symbol, take it at face value. He is just saying, look, some of you are going to go to prison for 10 days. Why does he even mention 10 days? It is a reminder that he knows what they are about. It's not 9 days. It's not 11 days. It's 10 days. And if someone wanted to make it 12, they couldn't. He knows exactly the details of your life and everything that will take place in your life. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days, but he has set some limits to it. Then finally, the church in Smyrna will face reward. They'll receive a reward. We are told now in verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful. Until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, when he says be faithful until death, that does not mean be faithful until you finally die. Now, you should be. But the way it's structured in Greek is be faithful unto death, that is, be faithful even if it costs you your life. Be faithful even if they kill you. And that's the most they can do. And if they kill you, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now remember, this city is called the crown city. If you're in the Aegean Sea and you look up at Smyrna, you'll see it sets up on top of a hill. In fact, some of the ancient remains are still there. You can see them. And they were all the way across the top of the hill, and from the sea, it looked like a crown. And so Jesus takes this city that they were so proud of. It was called the crown of Asia. And he says, I have a real crown for you. And it's not the word diadem that's used of a royal crown. It's the Greek word Stephanos. The Stephanos crown, the victor's crown. If you've been through the discovery class, we Study the five crowns, the imperishable crown, the rejoicing crown, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, and then there is here the crown of life, Stephanus. And for many Christians, it became something coveted because there was a man, Stephanus, his name is Stephen, and he becomes the first martyr in the church. And the Lord is saying, look, I see your persecution, I see your trouble but you are blessed when men persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. However it comes, for great is your reward in heaven. There's a crown that awaits you in heaven. Paul said, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. In other words, what we are headed for is absolutely nothing compared to what we're going through No matter how bad it is, keep your eyes on where we're headed because it will all be worth it when we get there. And he closes. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Now, we'll understand the second death better when we come to Revelation chapters 20 and 21 where it's mentioned three times. And in those chapters, it's very vivid and graphic, but very simply for now, what's meant by the second death is the lake of fire. It's the final resting place for the Antichrist, the false prophet, and for all those who reject Jesus Christ. It was originally prepared, the Bible says, for the devil and his angels. But it will be shared by everyone, including the devil, who refuses Jesus. People in the end will get what they want. See, people who are not born again, they basically say, I don't want to be born again. People who have heard the gospel and they spurn you, they're saying, I don't want God. I want my evil, and I want my life. And in the end, God will give them their wish. Eternal separation from the presence of the living God. Listen, Americans are overwhelmed with their health care. If we were more concerned with the second death than we were with the first death, we'd be a lot better off as a nation. If you're born once, you'll die twice. First physically, then eternally. But if you're born again, and you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said it three times over. It's not optional. It's not just a super charged form of Christianity that if you want it, you can take it. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And if you are, then Jesus promises the second death can never, ever hurt you. If you don't know him, wherever you may be, I invite you right where you are to call upon him in faith. Let's bow in prayer. Holy Father, thank you for your word, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank you for its promises, for its truth. I pray today, Father, for someone who is in the sound of my voice, who is unsure that heaven is even their home. They'd like to go. They think maybe they will go, but they don't know for certain. Your word says because they've never trusted the sufficiency of Jesus to save them. Thank you, Father, that when he died, he didn't die for some or most, but all of our sin. Because he did what he did, you can promise today what you promise: that whoever will call on Jesus' name will be saved. But we must come, your word says, as bankrupt sinners unable to save ourselves, help someone in simple, childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Now, Father, for those of us who know you, your word teaches that we are to care about the rest of the body of Christ because we are members one of another. That we should have a concern for the persecuted church and other parts of the world and do what we can either through political pressure or whatever means you might give us to care about their state. And I pray that as parents and as grandparents, that we would have eyes to see what is happening in our own nation and across the world. That persecution is growing at epidemic rates. Help us to prepare our own children that they will be persecuted, that they will be mocked and left out and made fun of and maybe even physically harmed. You said in the world we will have Philipsis, tribulation, but be of good cheer. You have overcome the world. Thank you that even when we are persecuted, we are blessed, for you promised great is our reward in heaven. So help us to take to heart the things that we've studied today. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.